You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's up, Jermaine Man, Doc Coyle. I am your X-Man, and this is the X-Man Podcast. Thank you for listening. You'll probably notice from the intro as well as the intro on the previous episode that I have joined a podcast network called Jabberjaw Media, and that was through my buddy Mike Mowry from Outer Loot Management, and it has a, a whole bunch of awesome podcasts on there. And shows that I've been on uh, as a guest, and I listened to uh, one uh, one called 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins, which I was a guest on, the Metal Sucks podcast, which I was a frequent guest on, and the, uh, the old hosts from that actually have a new show called The Metal Podcast, and hopefully I'll get to go on there and bust their balls. Um, Mike himself actually has two shows on there, one called O Marks the Spot which is the Outer Loop uh, podcast itself. And they also have one called Managemental with also where he co-hosts with Blasco of um, Rob Zombie and Ozzy Osbourne fame, who's also a manager of huge bands like um, Black Veil Brides and Zach Wild. And there's a bunch of other great shows on there. Lead Singer Syndrome with Shane Told, The Bad Christian Podcast, uh, Break It Down with Matt Carter, Modern Vinyl, whole lot of stuff. So... It's definitely a big move for this show to uh, link up with you know a network and hopefully get uh, more more promotion and you know just kind of make this thing a little more professional. But I'm really excited about that. I want to thank them. Really looking forward to to working with them. And you can check out all the podcasts I mentioned and more on www.jabberjawmedia.com. That's J A B B E R. J-A-W-M-E-D-I-A.com. The guest we have this week is an old friend of mine named Benny Harwitz. He's the drummer for a very, very popular band called the Gaslight Anthem. Uh, I know him from my old hardcore scene days, Jersey guy, and just an overall good dude. Uh, really proud of the, the the success he's had, you know, because he's just worked so long in, in music. Uh, he had a band called The Low End Theory and another band called The Killing Gift and all kinds of different projects, and he, and he stuck with it. And it's really incredible to see the, the kind of success. And I know I've had so many kind of 
just people in the same metal scene on this show. I really want to start expanding and get different people uh, from different genres. And so even if you are a, a metal person, I definitely think you'll you'll enjoy this this conversation. And one other thing I should probably bring up is Benny and I were supposed to do this in person when I was back in New Jersey, but we had a scheduling conflict. So I actually ended up doing this on Skype and it's my first Skype interview. I prefer to do this in person, but I don't want to let that hinder me from getting uh, a good show together. So I was experimenting with some things. So you might actually hear my microphone spike sometimes or distort. And that's just something I'm, I'm working with. Hopefully I'll have that figured out by the next episode. So I apologize for any inconsistencies with the audio. I really go out of my way to make the show sound good. So enjoy this conversation with myself and Benny Harwitz of the Gaslight Anthem. Anyway, so we have my my good friend, my old friend, Mr. Benny Horowitz of the band Gaslight Anthem on the X-Man pod. Say say hello to the uh to the podcast fans. Yo, what's up everyone? How you doing? <laughs> so, uh Benny and I came up together in the New Jersey hardcore scene. We can even go specific Central Jersey. Hardcore. Central Jersey. It, it was a different. It was a different vibe in in North Jersey, right? I don't know if we, we and, and yeah, in South Jersey, who didn't even exist. Well, the thing that used to piss me off was people who would like be from North Jersey or South Jersey or from Philly, and then they would go to Rutgers and be like, "I'm, I'm you know, we're, oh. we're we're a New Brunswick band." I'm like, "No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> you guys were literally the only New Brunswick band, I think." Maybe ever. That was right? probably true. Me and my brother actually went to New Brunswick High School. Yeah, we went to yeah. public schools, obviously, um, until essentially we were teenagers. You know, um, but yeah, grew up there. And then we where we rehearsed when we first met was literally like on the border of New Brunswick and Franklin. So that was about as close as you could be, you could be to being a real new new brunswick band but you know it's a it's it's a point of pride but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bust people's balls too too much at least we had some representation you know i think you should you should put some respect on that 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 doesn't happen <laughs> too often down there but all right so in your interpretation though like i hear this all the time what is central jersey to you geographically well if you were to be technical you could probably no. say anything from probably like basically Middlesex County to like Trenton is probably technically if you were to look at it on a map. But to me, Central Jersey was that area, area, you know, like Somerset County and Middlesex County would be Central Jersey to me, you know, right. like not it, even Union County. I guess that technically counts. But, I, but to me, almost like Newark, once you got to Newark, you were yeah, on the verge of being in North Jersey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And then if you lived in like Bergen County, you to me you lived in like Albany. <laughs> I didn't even know where that was when I was a kid. Yeah, that was like uh, not until I got a car where I could actually drive yeah. and like go with like, ooh, this is crazy up here You'd be like, in the what? sticks. <laughs> God forbid's playing at Knights of Columbus and uh Hohokus. I'll be there. Something I don't think like we that. did that. We, we I remember we played this place like we would almost never play North Jersey until like I think one time we played Connections. Oh. And then one time, and then that place, the rec room. You remember that? 
Mm-hmm. Did you go to that Dillinger, Candiria, Isis show that we played there at the rec room? No, I didn't. The show got shut down uh, when what? Candiria was playing because it was like some fire hazard or some some shit. It wasn't because of knuckleheads like that that the shows you'd usually get shut down. <laughs> I don't remember Candiria shows being too bad. No, it wasn't that. Uh, it, it's tough, guys. It was something that had nothing to really do with the show or something. Maybe they just put too many people in there. I don't know. I don't remember. But the show got shut down. That was a common theme, though, of shows getting shut down. Oh, yeah. I got a whole symbol case stolen at Connections. Lost four symbols at that place. Four symbols. Were, were they broken or were they, like, pristine, brand new? couple cracks, but, I mean, I was playing Connections, bro. This is way before I could just, like, replace a symbol, you know? That, that was a problem when that happened. <laughs> that took me, like, I don't know how many pizzas I had to deliver to to rebuy that sack of symbols. <laughs> well, I think that's 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 probably the burden of, of being a drummer. Like, the, I mean, it's the worst. It's You guys have it the worst. You have to move the most gear, spend the most money. You get the least amount of attention. If you fuck up, everything fucks up. Being a drummer aside, how did you end up getting involved in the uh, in the hardcore scene in New Jersey? Um, I mean, I guess loose affiliations with people. Uh, I had started skating before that. I'd met a kid in sixth grade named Steve Lawson, who uh, we actually met in sixth grade drum corps in the band, school band. And... Uh, He's a punk rock kid. His um, brother Dave had done the cover art for the first Shades Apart record for Uniform Choice, Screaming for Change. He did some cover art. So when my friend Steve was like a little kid, he's getting taken to shows. And by the time I met him, when we were like 11, 12 years old, he had been like crowd surfing and vision shows and stuff since he was like eight. And eight? Yeah, literally, like, went to those shows, and he and everyone knew him as, like, Little Steve, and he'd be, like, he was, like, known in that scene because he was so tiny and such a ripper and knew everybody. He had a chest tattoo at nine years old. Dude, nine. It was crazy. <laughs> Big eagle. Um, yeah, so, you know, he made me some stuff at that point, and, and, and then playing drums actually sort of, like, got me into some stuff because, you know, when... I first got asked to play in my first band. I was really still into like classic rock and grunge. Um, I would say I was closer to like an alternative kid than a punk kid. And uh, I started playing in this band. It was called Dilemma. And a couple of those guys in the band too were on some some hardcore stuff. And once that band started playing, we kind of started playing in the local hardcore scene and that really opened my eyes once we started playing these shows and connecting with bands and little scenes from other towns and stuff like that. And it was like a good like year or two kicking around in these basements and playing these local shows till we even went to New Brunswick for a show. I mean, our scene was really like small and there was like 10 just good local punk and hardcore bands that would kick around and yeah and that, that, that was my initial entry and i just fell i mean i fell for it hard man you know it was a similar time in my family where things were getting fucked up family split up and uh i was looking for something and i found something you know yeah the uh the band you were in 
when I met you, or I, I imagine that the band was active when I, when I met you was uh, the Low End Theory. And um, was that like your first band that did actual stuff, you know, put out records and tour and, and do things? Yeah, my we I had a, some bands in high school that had managed to get like seven inches out and stuff, you know, but ne- only played out of state a couple times. The Low End Theory was the first band that like got signed, like went to a studio, went on tour, like, yeah, did the whole thing. And I joined that started when I was like 17 and uh yeah, and it got kind of like serious like the year after, like when I was like 18. Did we ever play yeah. any shows together? I don't remember. I don't think so. I think right going. at the, it was right at the, it would probably be right at the beginning of that. Oh, you know what? Did you guys play the big benefit at Manville? No, we never got invited to play any of those. Oh, sorry. Hey, no, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still, fault. I'm still mad. All right. That was me. It was either me or Tim Shaw that ignored you. I'm not sure. Well, you know, well, you know, what's funny about that is like back then we were so ambitious to like do stuff and get a chance play in front of people. We're like, you know, you're not even thinking that, oh, that's like a benefit for someone to help their their lives. You're you're making it about you. Of course. (laughs) I I I was all about that. I knew that life. I know that life. No, that was but that was the um, Manville Elks Lodge. That was the first hardcore show I ever went to. It was Candiria for the love of? I remember every band that played for the love of um, Train of Thought, Blood Rust, yeah, Clubber Lang. That's awesome. I think that was it. Maybe yeah. Na- maybe Navi played. Maybe they opened. Yeah, I think they did actually. But I literally became. All those bands, we, I became friends with every single person that played that whole show. But the reason we found out about the show was because of For the Love of. We met them at a rehearsal space, and we were like, this is the greatest band I've ever heard in my life. And then we went to the show, and I was already a fan of uh, Candiria because they used to play them on WSOU all the time. So it was. Which it, rehearsal space was that? Big Noise. Oh, you met him? You met For the Love of at Big Noise? Yeah, that was our spot. That's where we, we used to yeah, rehearse. Yeah, that was their spot, too. Yeah strength and all those guys used to always practice there we wrote That's like awesome. three, we wrote like three records at big noise like the first god forbid records we wrote, wrote there what a beautiful beautiful for the love of when they came out like absolutely blew my mind like that band i remember a time when that demo came out like it just like hit me in that way like i couldn't take it and me and my brother were blasting it in his car. And we got so amped up that we were stopped at a stoplight and both got out and just started fucking swinging and doing karate moves in like the middle of an intersection, just blasting for the love. We couldn't control ourselves. There was just something about it. I still listen to that shit and like, and for the love of like that age as well, that still gets me worked up, man. It's well, it's. It it is the most um, influential band to to God forbid um, of that entire scene. Like it was the first time because the thing about them, even even in hindsight, was that the musicianship was a, really a notch above ninety percent of the bands in that entire oh, really? scene. Um, yeah, yeah. And they also uh, 
you know what I'll, pro- I'll probably play one play one of their songs on here so people know what we're talking about instead of us That'd just, be awesome. so this is doc i'm uh, gonna cut in real quick and actually play you a song from the band for the love of uh this one's called crawl to hide and it's the opening track from their feasting on the will of humanity lp um it was originally self-released and then ferret records put it out but i actually just for the sake of this i went on itunes and rebought the record because for some reason i don't have the cd or the mp3s with me so i got no problem supporting the cause but anyway check it out listen on this is the truth of it fighting leads to killing and killing gets to warring and that was damn near the death of us all Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. primary influence and it was the first time we saw a band that good up front up close you know i would say like yeah i could listen to pantera records i can listen to machine head but i'm not going to be able to go to a rehearsal and kind of be able because once you see a band in front of you you're like oh it makes it more realistic that you could get i don't know it's it's, it's a weird thing but you see it's like kind of getting uh maybe going to a film and be able to see behind the scenes and how they actually right. make the special effects and stuff. I don't know. And especially them too. Cause Dan and John were like, 
guitar for you, I could imagine, for a young guitar player, because those guys were so so insane on guitar. Well, it was it was just a an attention to detail and understanding technique and just that that there were these elements of because I I don't know being that you know at the time I was sixteen seventeen, just the idea of being making a band sound tight was like a uh, <laughs> it was like a tall mountain to climb you know like you it, you we were not trained in any way so it was you know when we were bad we knew we were bad like yeah right. we're and it was a we were and it was like all right we want to get good but it's going to be some time and we worked and worked and worked until we actually got good but when you see a really good band you're like oh let's just do that what do they do why are they you know you can analyze it up close mm-hmm. you know and those guys were like so pro too i mean they were like they took it at seriously. a time yeah at a time when bands weren't doing a lot of the stuff that they did you know even with like the performance stuff like you know if a guy like sean the singer for the love of wasn't such a kind of cocksure kid at the time like what if he had the balls to go up there with a fucking anvil and start smashing it at the perfect part when it hits the symbol in the song and like that whole like that performance aspect of stuff wasn't a huge part of hardcore you know and i liked i liked that i thought it brought it to another level yeah. and it maybe influenced a lot of those bands like you're you're like ink and daggers and you're like some bands kind of ran with it and just like maybe brought that performance element more into like hardcore. Maybe they're responsible for 18 visions. Well, I, I don't, I don't know if that's one true. way or another. I think we're, we're a little uh, skewed in that we ha- kind of have the local uh, bias where it was around us. I think if you go around that time, if so many bands didn't have a national presence. You were kind of hindered by your um, the re- regionality, really. So sure. I, I remember when we first met the Lamb of God guys, and they would show us all these Richmond, Virginia bands that influenced them that never got out. And I feel like For the Love of in, in some way is kind of like that, you know, where yeah. where a lot of people just, if you weren't there, if you didn't get to see those shows, the record might not actually just you know come have it come across the way it was if you were actually there you know that's true Um, do you think do you think that that thing that used to happen where like the scenes would develop really in sort of an insular way where a small group of bands and a small group of kids would really feed off each other and kind of play each other's shows and challenge each other and that sort of created like sounds and it created scenes created aesthetics can that whole thing even happen anymore this day and age well the thing what happens now i've noticed is now the younger bands kind of have a sense of the uh business of it so you'll have bands who come out and they'll literally have they won't even have a band they'll have a record they made on their computer and they'll they're like they're they're thinking about making merch and about having a manager and a booking agent. They're so kind of everything is, you know, because the truth is that bands out out of the quote unquote scene now get have actual careers, right? Like I never thought that. I don't. I feel like almost no one in our scene had any uh, illusions or delusions about having it be a career. Yeah, it wasn't possible yet. You know, it was the bands like. You know, a band like VOD, who was on Roadrunner, 
you know, or even like a band like Madball, like it almost seemed like they were playing a different sport, you know, like they were in a different realm. Of... But even even those guys, I mean, we were kids and we viewed those bands a certain way. But like, I bet if the guys from Madball in the mid 90s were home for more than six months, they had to work. Yeah, I you know, know. That's what I'm saying. Like there was the... like they were set. Yeah, exactly. There was a there was definitely a a disconnect, you know, and but now I think, you know, bands can look out there like, oh, hey, breed, I have a career and bring me the horizon plays arenas and park, yeah, yeah. Park, like Parkway Drive literally draws like 2000 people a night. Huge. You know, yeah. and they're not they're not soft. They don't have radio songs. They're a fucking metalcore band. Yeah. You know, so it's like so people see that. But I think what you have definitely lost is regionality, right? So but they have beautiful surfers' bodies. They're they're they're, they're attractive they're, men. They're they're a really so good, fast. really good live band, actually. Yeah, they're fun. They're super fun. Um, no, but uh, I think so. Like like for example, like if you look at what God forbid did, we were really influenced by all these bands from Sweden, right? So that Swedish sound, quote unquote, no one can see the quotes I'm doing, got. <laughs> kind of filtered through the scene the bands we were you know bands like shadows fall and unearth and and all that and that was almost a precursor to what happened where you could be from far away and adopt someone else's sound and then so the so there was a time when you had to be from sweden to sound like that but then you didn't right. whereas like right. so the influence we got from the band like to me i found that there was a a groove to the northeast sound right whether it's candiria whether it's biohazard whether it's life of agony there was, sure. there was just something about that that was common whether you know so we had it and e-town had it and even yeah, yeah, yeah. even dillinger when they wanted to lay it down they could you know their breakdown parts well did they just they understood it like there's a it's a kind of yeah, language but came it, up with it, yeah. but it comes from that just being around that environment even anthrax has it you know, <laughs> you know, because right. they they were influenced by the New York hardcore scene and all that stuff. So it's it's definitely something where I don't know if that is a thing anymore, where people are really influenced by the the immediate bands around them, as opposed to, well, no, now I have Spotify and I can listen to literally every band in the world and can right. be influenced by anything. And things are, right. you know, and you, you have things like Live Nation, which has essentially created a a network and a monopoly of venues you know whether you, you know whether it's uh AEG or whatever like you know so these things get filtered and I, and I know there definitely still is a DIY scene you know you look at bands like Code Orange and Nails and that whole kind of scene like that that's definitely kind of on the on the come up um and obviously we're not I'm not connected to it as much as I was or, or maybe in any way at all anymore, unfortunately, but it, I definitely know it's there. But I think the, the commerce aspect has become more kind of materialized, you know, even some yeah. look at a band like terror, that's literally been, a, you know, a, a working band that has a career for whatever it's been 15 years, whatever that band's been, been around. I don't even know how long, but someone can at least look at that. Even if you're a Harker band say, Oh yeah, you can do that and have a career. You can sure. see it. It's very immediate. You know, I mean, hell, yeah. now you can even just go and hit a motherfucker up on Twitter and be like, hey, how did your band make it? And they yeah. can tell you, you know, it's uh, true. You know, it's so a that, mystery. 
The mystery is gone. See, the funny thing is, you don't see how I came here to talk about you. We ended up talking about the scene. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are you gonna do, man? We're just talking. You no, know? I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, actually, so kind of going back to that realm, like, how did, um, how do you like how do you feel about low end theory now? Like, like, what's your reflection on it? Was it? Did you think it was any? Like, you listen to it now and be like, well, that's, eh. It's, <laughs> do you have any any hard opinion about it? Or how do you feel about it? No, I actually, and I know it might sound cheesy, but at some point or another, I fall in love with every record I put out. Yeah, and I kind of don't find it worth working on or putting it out unless I do. So, like, as if, of course, like I listen to something I recorded. Fuck, I mean, scary to say how long ago it is now, close to 20 years, like, at some point. But, um, so, of course, when I hear some of the parts and I hear some of the drumming, I go, all right, I'd maybe approach that a little differently these (laughs) days. Or, like, you know, just some of the shit, I'll slap my head, I'll be like, Jesus Christ, what was I thinking? It's, like, ridiculous. So I'll still kind of, like, self-critique myself in that way but um i do listen to like records like that with like great nostalgia and fondness you know i really do i love that stuff man i do it like it was so important to me and actually when i listen to the last low in theory ep i still get mad about like how abruptly that band broke up and at the time it broke up and the fact that it never got its like fair shake, you, you know. Because I feel like that bothers me. Still. I feel like Jersey, and I guess you could kind of put Long Island in that same thing of like being ahead of the curve as far as the emo sound, or you know, and which obviously exploded. But it was things were happening there. Bands like Lifetime and Save mm-hmm. the Day and all that stuff, um, you know, and obviously the Long Island bands, brand new and Taking Back mm-hmm. Sunday and all that. Um, did did you feel did you feel at the time like wow this thing is about to pop and we missed the boat? I don't think as like as clear eyed as we could say it now because you know it's a lot easier to say in retrospect. I mean, in that time, we were just being influenced by the bands we liked and playing the music we liked, you know, and almost like we alluded to earlier in this interview, the the idea that like some of these bands we were into felt really big to us, even though they maybe weren't, you know, like you even talk about Long Island, like brand new and taken back. Sunday. this is pre that. I mean, this is like silent majority and this is bands like that. And to us, silent majority was like a really big band because silent majority Essentially, to me, like at the time, any band that was just like getting out of town and putting something out and touring was like a great success, you know. Um, And so we felt like we were definitely part of a scene and part of something that was like new and awesome. But um, I don't think we had the wherewithal to know that we were on like the cusp of some some bigger wave or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now I do. And now I realize like we were kind of like on some shit like early, you know, <laughs> like before a lot of those bands were, but you know, you, 
it's something that maybe used to bother me, but I think a lot about the way music is and the way art is. And you've seen it a million times now because you've been around a long time. Like not everyone who's good makes it. Not everyone who got there early makes it. And more often than not, the band who stole from the pioneering band and kind of cleaned it up and made it a little better is the one to actually get mad famous from it. Um, and that's just like, it's just the way it is, you know, like, yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely agree with that. And, you know, have kind of, I feel like I've almost been on both ends of that, you know, like almost like missing one wave and then catching the next wave. And then, you know, and, and, oh, and then you'll hear other people, man, why is this band big? Like, like on my last podcast, I had um, Mark from the band Suicide Silence on, and he was literally asking me like, why, why didn't you think your band got to this level? I'm like, dude, I just don't. I don't look at those things in those terms. To me, there's no should have or what it's just like it just is. That's it. That's what happened, you know, and, and that's okay. There's nothing you know, it's only there's only an issue when you're you run into what your expectations. You know, if you're saying, Well, I should have had this, I deserve like me, I don't even believe in the word deserve. That doesn't mean anything to me. Um, it's like just empty. But um look, but I feel like I feel like that that perspective took took some years to get that perspective, at least for me, you know, like to have the wisdom of like doing your own thing and feeling comfortable with it and not looking at other people's situations. And, you know, I went through that with the low end theory at some point, you know, in the second wave of the low end theory, you know, we were in New Brunswick at the time when Thursday saves the day and Midtown all came up and at the time every time we were playing with those bands at first we were playing over them we were drawing more locally they were young bands and we watched all three of those bands basically get signed get out of town start touring and get bigger and as much as those guys were my friends and i was rooting for them there was a part of me that was jealous and there was a part of me that felt like i deserve what they have yeah, and but, that was, that was, but and that was almost like, you could almost say for this area, this might that you know for the emo or post hardcore, whatever you want to call that, um, you know that was almost like a mini Seattle, for that you know there's all those bands you know the bands got really big, you yeah, know? Um, and uh, I can I can imagine how that because that because that's what I was I was I was thinking about was that I remember. You know, when we were doing our thing around that time, all the people around us were like going to college and they never like people that were in bands, they were in bands and they, they kind of took it seriously. But it was always like a temporary thing. And I think yeah, in, their, yeah. in their minds, they were very realistic about it. Whereas us in God forbid, we were like, we have nothing else. This is it. We're, we didn't go. We're, we didn't go to college. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't. You know, um and we literally put all our eggs in that basket and, and went with it. And we always looked at it like every opportunity we got, we, even though we didn't expect it, we were just like, they're like, this is all we have, you know? And, and I think that's what carried us through. Were you ever that guy who was like, oh, I'll just do this for a little bit and kind of move on? Or were you kind of a lifer from day one? Uh, I think in reality, I've been a lifer from day one. 
I do think because of certain pressures from the outside and putting on myself uh, and from the type of family and the type of situation I come from, um, the decision to be a lifer maybe wasn't as easy. Uh, and I had scruples at times um, about about doing it full time without anything to show for it, you know, don't you which come, don't you come from a house of learned doctors? <laughs> my, my father. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm actually the only member of two generations of my family and not graduate college. Um, wow. <laughs> he says he's just going to go into the family field, but you're a medical doctor. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Step up. <laughs> no, I that's where I came from. That's right. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, but that, but that was a real thing. I mean, like, um, my father's an educator, my aunt's an educator, my uncle's an educator. And I'm not just talking like teachers, like I'm talking like college professors and doctors and like real academics, you know, yeah. where like college and academia is like really important to them. Um, so as much as I did, and that was mixed with my European immigrant Jewish grandparents who it didn't matter what you were doing. It was just about foundation and success, you know? So I could go tell my grandfather that I was just playing in some weird state, some weird country or something and just be like, Oh, cool. You making money yet? Like, are you set? Like you building your family, you getting things right. You know, there was one one metric for, for what is success or what is you're supposed to be doing just stability. I mean, they were, they were immigrants, you know, they like, they didn't understand this idea of like, Oh, I'm just gonna forsake all security to, to fulfill my dream. Like that just seems silly to them. You know what I mean? Uh, we were raised in American society where we were like, where you get to kind of like, I don't know, float around and try <laughs> in well, some way. Well, I think I think that's a kind of a description of what life was at a certain time, especially were they um, did they flee from the Holocaust or anything like that? Or uh, one one of my grandmothers did. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, you're you know, I think the way you judge what a kind of fulfilled life or or um, or I think anyone who comes from an Im- immigrant background especially with with regards to america you know life was such hard was so much harder probably in these other places that in a way they felt like if they didn't take advantage of what america had to offer uh from a financial standpoint that they weren't it was like they weren't fulfilling the reason why they came there and and, for sure you know so I, i i totally understand that but i also understand the idea that when life is not uh defined by desperation that we can be a little more whimsical kind of in our, in our pursuits and, and what, you know, we're human beings are, are driven by needs. Right. So it's like, it's like if you're thirsty and you, you have, you want water, once you have water, you're not thinking about water, right. you know? And that's, and that's the same thing. It's like, once you have a roof over your head and you're not starving and you're not, and you know, all right, we're not going to, you know, have some war or anything. And, and life is generally stable. Then, yeah, you start thinking about the deeper, uh, elements of meaning beyond just survival or, sure. or like that, I, you know, I don't, I, I think there's something about kind of, 
the tradition in, in around the world, which which is more family oriented, like, all right, we have our family and our traditions and we keep it together. And it's uh, there. There is something to that for for probably most of the world. That's just how they operate, you know. But if you look in all the um, kind of Western society, w- what's happening? People are marrying less. They're having less children. Um, and that there is definitely some connection with kind of secular um success you know where people stop acting in those those same ways you know well it's how you deem success because i mean i think if you're what you mean prosperity prosperity like in terms of you know you go to look at japan you look at australia these are prosperous places and and there are certain when you kind of detract the the religious element that which you know was all about uh enforcing the traditions of marriage and family and procreation and all these things of kind of continuing uh, these traditions. But when those things, and I think there is something about the, the secular idea in the West, and especially look throughout Europe where they're, even though they have these countries are, you know, they have a state religion or whatever, the people themselves are not very religious, you know, especially in Scandinavia, uh, you know, et cetera. Definitely. Well, I think the thing at that time was like, you know, as much as that pressure was coming from that side, there was also a part of me that was realistic, not about music, but just about life, you know? And, like, um, I knew what a loser was. I grew up around a lot of fucking white trash dudes who had no futures. And I was also around music long enough that I knew a lot of dudes who spent their you know, their teens and their twenties working for something that they didn't get and wound up in a place in their thirties, like they were lost, you know? Um, and I guess in my head, I did always imagine myself to like set myself up a little better than that. I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do this in a way that's like, I'm not going to fall on my ass. I don't want to be fucking poor the rest of my life. I don't want to fucking scrape the rest of my life. And money had been such a problem with me that um, the idea of turning it into something that I could support my life from was really important to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't want to fucking do it for free forever. That's a fact. So, uh, so, so- And that was my gauge for success was literally... I just want to support my life doing this and not doing anything else. Okay. Well, like, uh, I'd, I'd say like the last thing I kind of remember, you know, with you before, like I got super busy. It was kind of like just away touring and do, doing things was you were playing with a band called, uh, the killing gift. Um, you know, and I went to, you know, see you guys rehearse. I went to some of your shows and yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that was also with Alex, right. Who's also in, yep. in gaslight anthem. Um, what, what ended up happening with, with that band? Well, that, that was, uh, same thing. We, um, we started, we did a record, you know, got signed and did some touring and we're building a pretty good thing. And then it, uh, we had some, I mean, you knew our old, our old singer, we were young, she was young, things got a little hectic at the time. And I think we just lost control of it. Um, and this was like, also, what, what, around like 2004? 
Yeah, probably about that. Like that's when that, that started coming to an end. And, uh, you know, it also, like, I think, um, creatively, you know, Alex and I and risky, the guitar player, we, we had sort of this idea to have like, like far or hum or, you know, failure, like one of these kind of more heavy, groovy post-hardcore bands, like that kind of music with female vocals. And I think we found ourselves teetering on the Evanescence line, (laughs) like, like a lot more than we wanted to. I I went to go listen, listen back to it. And it's, to me, it almost reminds, there's that, you know, the old movie, The Crow, right? course remember the the female fronted band that's playing in the club (laughs) like it almost like i was like oh it could almost be like that like almost like in that like kind of dirty alternative kind of thing that's that that sounds like because i i literally hadn't listened to it i was actually amazed i could find there's a video on on youtube i don't know if you know oh yeah i do i do (laughs) i put my symbols unnecessarily high just to try and look cool hey man that's why that's why i got no rotator cuff left doc really from high symbols i I did that dumb shit when i was young you know trying to look cool hey man i i used used to have the guitar you know down around my uh my 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 nutsack to look like slash you know and that didn't you know didn't do much for the left hand but uh do you do the flip around no i never did that shit because it's it's here's the thing all right i'm not doing no fucking move that everyone else does all right doc coil is coming up with his own moves all right i've seen motherfuckers steal my moves listen right? you're on some ricky henderson shit now no yo oh, oh i talk in third person <laughs> with consistency you know why because it feels good baby like you're talking about somebody else ain't you <laughs> i'm talking about the character doc coil. <laughs> i like it it's true man it's true um so all right, so that that's where I kind of I got real busy. I feel like I didn't see you for a long time after that. Maybe like we'd run into each other at you know, at you know the court tavern or or something. So how did how did uh you Gaslight Anthem get started? Uh, like from like from Killing Gift like A to B like that. Yeah, because it's obviously some some of the same members and. Well, yeah, like at first Killing Gift, you know, we sort of like parted ways with Renee. Parker also left and we had a new bass player, this guy, Daryl, and we started writing songs and like rehearsing singers at the same time and nothing really panned out. We, we, you know, practiced with a few guys and we didn't really like it, but we continued to write songs and that eventually turned into Spiro Agnew, which was our like kind of very visual epic stoner metal band so <laughs> i remember that yeah so spiro agnew came off of the end of killing gift and we were kind of just doing that at the time and um it was sometime at the you know towards the um fall of 05 uh i got a call from jay smalls who you remember i'm sure mm-hmm uh, and you know Jay owned XOXO Records, who was doing stuff via Eyeball Records, and he told me that like he had been working with a guy, um, 
this one band called This Charming Man that they did a tour and they lost their drummer and that uh, they were looking for another one and that Eyeball was signing them and that they were going to put out a record and this and that. So, you know, at the time, I was like sort of in that like, like exactly what you were just talking about. I'm like, all right. I had kind of rehearsed with a few bands. I almost played in that band, like the AKAs and like some random shit, just because I was sort of getting to that desperation point where I was like, I will do anything that like puts me on the road getting paid playing drums. Like, I don't give a fuck. Did you have like another job at this time or anything? I was working at the Targum. Yeah, I was uh, working at the Daily Targum, the Rutgers newspaper. Didn't everyone work there? (laughs) They did, and I was their boss, actually, at the time. At the time this was going on, I was actually, like, the night production manager at this newspaper. So I was in a salary job. Like, Did you ever, like, have that moment where you're like, I might have to quit doing music around that time? Because you were at that time, so, like, po- you know, post-Killing um, Gift, but pre-Gaslight Anthem, where you, like, you were, what, like, 20, 25, 26? How, how old are you at that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was I was twenty twenty five, um, and almost twenty six. And yeah, I'm I never in my head had the idea of quitting playing music. Like that's never been an option for me. Um, I'll always play, I'll always play music. But but did you feel yeah. like you were chasing something or like yeah. being a little unrealistic with things or? Yes, I did. In all honesty, I thought that border between dedication and idiocy was starting to get more and more blurred. Like, you know, cause I respect somebody who's dedicated to something I truly do. And I respect someone who's dedicated to a craft, but at what point do you have to like go ahead and manage your life and take care of something, you know what I mean? And actually like solidify something. And I did feel that pressure. So when I remember it's funny, like I, at some point I told Alex that the killing gift was my last band. I was like, Oh, this is my last one, my last try. And then I'm going to go do something else. And then like, I'm still doing a stoner metal band. And then this call happens. And then by the time I'm in gaslight, I'm like, all right, this is my last band. So like I told you before, I'm like, I think in reality, I've always been a lifer and I'd never wind up doing something else. But like I said, I had mad scruples. Like there were times definitely where, where I, but, but that's become a, that's a theme in my life, regardless of what I'm doing is I'm going to over analytically question and re-question everything I do about a hundred times over. And so, I mean, there's like no decision I'll make in life that's made with a hundred percent certainty that never happens. Mm -hmm. All right. So. So at that point, so yeah, so Jay gave me a call. He said this guy, and I'm like, okay, cool, interesting. And I listened, I believe, to a MySpace um, at the time of a few of the songs. I like the way you say that, where you put the emphasis on the space, MySpace. MySpace. And, uh, you know, and I remember hearing it and being like, you know, at some point in like the low end theory, I remember being like, all right. I'm into being in good bands, but I'm going to need a fucking singer at some point for me to be able to do this for real. And like, and I remember hearing these, this charming man songs online 
and thinking like music's a little mid-tempo for my taste you know what i mean but like this guy can really write songs and he's got like a rad voice and every single song on here is like got a hook and i'm like that's definitely worth like checking out and and i went up there i drove up to north jersey where um brian and his wife were living at our bass player alex's family's house in this big house and they were living together and we were able to play in the basement and jammed with them and you know it's funny i i I was all like cavalier about it then and i was like oh like brian offered me like the job basically like right away play in charming man or it was this was the play in this charming man yeah and brian offered me it and of course i was like yeah i'll get back to you man like (laughs) like such a fucking dick uh and and i like had to go think about it and this and that and i remember it's funny it was uh that whole crew um you know i'm like like uh luke bodenstein's crew like john zajac and mm-hmm. all those guys by the way luke, luke 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 is my is is one of my best fr- best friends and one of benny's good friends old friends yeah so then they did this big uh, Labor Day barbecue every year at Johnson Park in Holland Park or Donaldson Park. I'm sorry, in Holland Park. And I remember deciding at that barbecue that I was going to like play with them. So it was actually at John Zajac's softball Labor Day barbecue, September 05, that I actually like called Brian and was like, sure, I'll do it, you know. Um, and then uh, – we had that band. It was an old guitar player, Mike, and Brian and Alex Levine. And we went in fairly quickly after that to try and record the first record for Eyeball. And things didn't go well. Um, we weren't ready. It was rushed. And uh, put us in there with a producer who, like, none of us were really accustomed to working with producers yet. And it was kind of odd. And it just didn't work out. And basically Brian was, uh, offered a deal that was essentially like, you can stay on eyeball if you like fire your band and we get you like a house band and you just like play this kind of way, you know? And Brian kind of just like took a chance on the people he had and just went with it. And we left eyeball. And when that happened, Jay was there with XO, just like, yo, I'm cool. I'll still put out the record. And uh, not long after that, we did a tour, and the old guitar player, Mike, had to leave. And I knew Alex from, you know, Killing Gift and Spiro, and I always thought he was great. I never wanted to stop playing with Alex, really. So I got him in that, and that's when it turned into Gaslight, and off it went. So now... A lot of people that listen to this show, I've mainly had all these like metal dudes on here. And one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on sooner than later was to like diversify the roster. So if you motherfucking metal motherfuckers are listening. I hope uh, I hope I'm filling your fucking affirmative action quota here. Ain't, don't say ain't no affirmative action. You are you I, I need you, brother. I need you. <laughs> um no no, but I, I want to people don't you know that some of the people that might listen to the show might not have an idea of how fucking huge your band is um <laughs> these this motherfucker told me he's like yeah man playing radio city music hall i'm like okay okay no. 
I guess that's how you live in. <laughs> All right. So you got hold on, hold on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask some questions about how how big, big your band is. Y'all got, y'all, y'all got y'all got any platinum records? No. Getting you, you gold records? Not in America. You don't have any gold records in America, but you got some gold no. records though on your wall from Germany. Where are they from? UK. UK. Okay. All right. All right. There you go. You got any Grammy nominations? No. No Grammy nominations, man. This is some, this, this is some old bu- bullshit. But anyway, you're you. All right. So after all this time, you get in one of those bands. All of a sudden, I start seeing at your shows, fucking Bruce Springsteen is playing with you, motherfuckers. Yeah. And you're playing these massive festivals, and you're doing all this fucking huge stuff. And um, you know, like I went and and I wasn't, you know, at the time I wasn't really super familiar with the band. So, you know, I was like, go ch- check it out and stuff. And it, and it sounds like, I'm listening, I'm like, this is like grown-up music. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I was actually yeah. like listening, I was like doing my research, and I'm listening, like the first EP almost reminded me of like like Social D or something like that, like in that vibe. And like each, mm-hmm. and then and then obviously the, uh, the 59 sound, that's where things, you know, I think that's where most people make the, the, Bruce Springsteen uh, connection just with the way it's produced and obviously being a New Jersey band and, and that, 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 that whole thing. And then listen to some of the newer records. It seemed like the band got more polished, you know, and kind of um, even whatever the, the first song of the last record actually almost sounds like could be like a grunge thing. So it's like, the, there's a lot of evolutions within, within the band, but yeah, it's like grown, like it's music that if you played it for someone's, mom they'd be like yeah this is nice where it's like which is the complete antithesis to like all the bands we did when uh-huh. we were younger right yeah yeah for is, sure was that was that weird for you like did you feel like oh this is this is something different or this was like no this is what i'm trying to do i'm trying to get at it fuck all that old stuff this isn't where i want to be no no it wasn't like you know the thing is i've always been behind the music we made You know, there was never a time where I was like questioning what we were doing. I always felt good about it. Um, Yeah, but did did it feel like so? Because to me, there's a big difference. Like like where you're like, wow, I'm finally like when you're you're putting you know putting that first EP together, or maybe it was on the second record. I don't know, but where you're like, oh, wow, I'm in a real fucking band. Like this is. You know when that happened for me? Actually, Doc was like. It was long before like the soccer moms started coming to see us. Um, it happened when I was on tour roadieing for We're All Broken, opening a tour for Thursday. Mm-hmm. And Gaslight had just started and we had a three song demo. And you know, I was like the guy in all my other bands. Like yeah. I booked shows, I fucking, I was the dude in all my other bands. So, I knew a lot of fucking people from booking shows and I spent a lot of years calling people for help. You know what I mean? When low end theory, killing gift, like any of these bands I had needed shows in other cities, needed to put records out, needed distribution, needed any number of things. I was calling everybody I knew for help, you Mm -hmm. know, like that's the way it worked. Like that was the scene, you know? And Gaslight put out this demo and I did the same thing I always did. I like hit up my people. I started trying to get shows. I started trying to do this. 
And right away, like I noticed something different, you know, like there was something different about it where it was almost like I was getting the impression that it's like, oh, Benny's got, oh shit, like Benny's got actually like a new band, like for real this time. Like, you know, like I don't have to just help this guy because I like him. I actually want to because I like his band, um, which was fine to me. And and uh, so I, I started picking up on the fact that it was just different. Like people were far more receptive to it than they had been the things in the past. It had and, a natural momentum. Exactly. And then um, and then I went on that tour and, you know, we're all broken, played like first of four. um I just came to hang out, you know, they weren't paying. I was just like selling merch and driving and roadieing and just whatever. And I started kicking this demo around on that tour. And I get made fun of because some of the guys who are on that tour are still like, you know, road guys who you still see around a lot. Like, you know, uh, like Jimmy, the tour manager, Mike Fry, like like a bunch of guys I see all the time still. And they make fun of me because I was like on this tour fucking being a hustler, just pushing demos, you know, trying to trying to get my shit right. And and I even noticed then like these guys like on this tour were like, yo, this shit's really good, you know, and they were like stoked on it. And I kind of realized at that point, I'm like, this thing's got like this one's like real, you know, like and this one like has a lot of potential. And I think I knew that and I knew how special it was because of like how many years I had, you know, kind of, kind of really like with that Sisyphean task, you know, pushing the rock uphill, like, because, mm -hmm. because I didn't have anything that like could get me what I wanted sort of, you know? Mm -hmm. So what, so you understood there was, there was a, a reception that was different, but what about like on the ground? Like when did the band start hitting in terms of selling records, having people show up at, at, at your shows? Was that a pretty immediate thing or did it take some time? Yeah. I mean, it was all, it was to us, it felt very slow and progressive in the grand scale. It actually did happen pretty fast. Um, but you know, again, it was like, I was dealing with such a, tiny sample size you know like i had never been in a very successful band before so, this so you had really not too much to compare it to no so literally man like you know if there was a show that 10 kids were singing along at and a hundred dollars of merch was sold i was like fuck yeah like that was good for me that was like a big night you know like um so at that point man, when stuff started happening, literally like every step of the way was, was like just the best, you know, every time it happened, like, did you, did you notice like, because of our, the scene, I think we, we came from and like I said, none of us were, had those expectations of anything. Did yeah. you notice like people treating you differently or people like dick riding <laughs> like that and that's that start to creep up at all also you start hearing from motherfuckers you ain't heard of heard from in 10 years yeah for sure <laughs> for sure i can't i can't say that shit didn't happen and i can't say that when gaslight went on break there's a lot of people i'm not hearing from as much yeah. you know um but that's real man like and that's i don't know i don't take that shit that hard like 
the only thing I would take hard is like, because I like to think of that as people, you know, being genuinely excited for you. Because, yeah. I mean, really, how much can I give someone? You know what I mean? No one's like, hit. Not, you know, it has happened where I've been hit up for money. But, like, I, th- I feel like for the most part, people are excited for me. I think the thing that would fuck me up the most is if, like, people like you had something to say about what I did. You know what I mean? Like, if I had to go back to New Brunswick... And people are like, oh, Benny, you like played out your people to get what you want or you did it some weird way or something like that. Like, I'm pretty like I feel good about like the path I took, you know, to like get where I'm at. And I think most people I know and most people who saw it got respect for me and know that I did it a certain way. And uh if someone had something else to say besides for that, I'd be pissed. And I have been pissed at a fucking couple people who said shit before. Well, like, because that I'm not going to fucking take. Like, I'm not going to go back to New Brunswick and have someone try to play me out. Like, yeah, that pisses me off. Well, I it's it's weird. I, I feel like in, in some ways, because at least from the heavier side of things, we were, God forbid, was one of the most successful bands that came out of that, you know, to whatever degree you want to say that it is from that scene. I mean, obviously, we definitely didn't get, we never yeah. got as big as Dillinger. Um, we never, you know, there's, you know, there's definitely things we didn't get to. But in terms of what was going on, we definitely went, you know, to go from, you know, playing the Eminem Hall to playing Ozfest and actually like selling records and people giving a shit and you know being able to like pack the starland and shit like that was you know pretty pretty crazy for us but but there's also but also what we were doing there's definitive kind of i think uh limitations to where you can go Mm -hmm. you know so to me to see you know it's still relatively underground but to see what you did it was like it was for me it was just like in a way it was like one of our it's like we sent one of our representatives out into the <laughs> out into the 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 regular world um and it, i was just so happy because to me you were like one of the realest dudes like because i saw all the work you did leading up to that it was like it was just like it's just to me it's just an amazing story you know that's the that's the main thing about why I do the the podcast is to like tell people stories of how they got from A to A to B or A to Z for that matter. Um, and that, that was just the thing. It was like, wow, like one of the, like one of the good guys actually won. Do you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like, that's how I, I, I felt it was like, you know, it's definitely like for me, like a vicarious uh, success. Like, well, we're all winning, you know, um, One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. 
Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2Z. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. I very much appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. no, it was it, it's just it's just amazing in it. And um I don't know, like and I guess the thing I was always interested that I didn't know because I felt like it was you and Alex, like when that band was first going, like was you were you guys part of a scene? Did you break the band in like a scene or is it kind of is that world just a completely different vibe in terms of how you get out there and and, and spread spread the word? Yeah, I mean at first we were for sure. Like there was um a few bands local that we were playing a lot with. We were doing shows of like Scream Hello a lot in New Brunswick, Spin the Kill Takers, we were playing in the city a lot with. Did you ever do like and warp tour or anything like that? We did one like eight day stretch of warp tour when we were on Side One Dummy because Side One Dummy put out the warp tour records and were like really close with Kevin Lyman. Um, so when we started doing well on Side One, they always pushed for us to do warp tour. We always pushed to not do warp tour. Um, we always thought it was a bad idea. For and that's where, you know, you talk about where I come from and the place I got to. A lot of that, to his credit, had to do with Brian and the fact that he didn't really hold the same exact sort of like punk and hardcore scruples. The guilt, punk rock right. guilt. Exactly. And, and he had it and he came from the same place, but he also had a very realistic idea of what he wants to do. And and never put like limitations on where it could go. Yeah. And and that was smart. It was really smart. You know, he never he never like was like, oh, I'll never sign to this. I'll never do that. He was always like, I'll do what happens when it happens. You know, it was it was. And and I had a lot more like, oh, I don't know about that. Like the punk police won't feel good about that. The the appearances of things. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And then. And then fairly quickly, you know, our first record leaked online and um, one of the people who grabbed it 
were a couple of the guys at the time who were working for like Vice magazine, like Ryan Duffy and this guy Jake. And they hooked us up with um, with an Against Me show in the city, sort of like a secret Against Me show. And we played this show and we got kind of tapped into that world because Jordan Kleeman, who was the tour manager for Against Me, had a small label called Sabbath. And they put out an EP for Gaslight. And, you know, we did a lot in Florida. We were playing with this with uh, Fake Problems a lot. It was Chris's, Chris Farron's band. And um, that became probably our scene a little bit, sort of like the, the fest, punk news, you know. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if you could call that a scene, but, like, that's... You know that that definitely harvested us at the beginning. Um, was, it, was it? Was it? Did you guys kind of benefit from kind of the rise of like hipster culture and that kind of realm? Did just I, I'm just saying in terms of like to me, I, I guess sometimes I think about I'm programmed to think about things in terms of markets. Like, all right, this demographic, these you know, eighteen to twenty five people who live in you know, I, I think yeah. of those things and. And prop, I'm just saying, like, to me, when I think about hipster culture, when it really arrived, it's like that 2010 type, you know, at least when it showed on, on my r radar. And then, like, I'd have friends and they would, like, show me these bands and, like, all these new things. I'm like, where do you find this stuff? Like, it's like a whole different scene of, like, the bands that play, you know, like, the bands that, like I said, that play these festivals, play a rock band that'll play Coachella or something like that. Or it's, like, almost under the radar but it's kind of big. Like I'm just, it's so alien to me. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. asking you to educate me on, uh, on just in that, in that one, I do feel like one of the things that actually made gaslight successful at the time it got successful is the fact that we're not hipsters. Yeah. And the fact that like, even though your mustache we, right, right now, you'd have a lot of people would argue with you, right? They'd be like, yo man, what's up with that Brooklyn mustache? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Santa Brooklyn mustache. Shit comes in the 70s, bud. Yeah, but that's uh, what they're trying to do. They're trying to read. It's, it's, it's the remix. Yeah, but listen, they're trying to do it. You're I got it. Hair, I got hair down to my ass under this hat. All right, that's I got true. my thing. I got my shit tight over yes, here. I'm feeling that you but, should be in. You should be in Stillwater. You know what I'm saying? Feel the dog coming I, down my back room. <laughs> wait, what would I? I I'd only have one line though. I just I'm gay. <laughs> that's his only line that's the drummer the drummer yeah yeah this is well, one line i'm sorry that is the fucking buzz <laughs> <laughs> but i actually like you know it, it's almost funny you that, like, the, the anti-hipster band like even yo the narrative that got created for us like in the uk i mean literally i think kids like think we like rolled up to shows all in like a pickup truck and like literally like unhinged our tool belts and walked on stage like that's how this idea of like real like working class new jersey yeah. cats in this band that were successful i think that's like part of the reason the people who like us like us and it was very and un, I like, un, very unpretentious yeah and, and honestly and and i think where we came from has a lot to do with it and the fact that we didn't get any taste of success until we knew that it's really special to have it, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, and we're all like proper Jersey kids, you know, like real like kids who had to come up, you know. Um, well, well, the word the word that kind of 
that when I listen to the band that I think of is Americana. I mean, that might sound, I don't know if that's, you know, the pro- a proper term or, or whatever, but that's kind of what, what I feel when it, it just has like this, yeah, like this, this, this kind of like I said, this kind of, it's the sound of throwback American authenticity, you know, I guess. Um, and I, think, I thought we were just Northeast elites, though, you know? I mean, you, listen, you come from a house of learned doctors, so this has been established. All right, all right, but you, you cannot avoid it. <laughs> so, so, so what, so the band is on a, um, a hiatus now? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what, what's, like, is that, is that scary for you? It's it's been interesting, man. It's been an interesting ride. Did you know um, that was coming? Yes, it was discussed and planned, so it wasn't a surprise. And I was one of the larger proponents to do this. Um, Why? I thought it was, I thought it was a good idea, and I think if Gaslight just continued as it were in the album cycle thing every two years and just going at it. I think we would have either done a really bad record or we might not even be around anymore. Um, it just hit that time. Like it was just like 10 years straight, nearly eight, nine years straight in that time. We did five full lengths, you know, all with Siri. I mean, it was five full lengths in eight years, a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of work. It was a lot of touring. I mean, we never stopped, especially at first. Like there were a couple years there where we were doing at least 250 shows. Were you, mar- um, were you married then? Not yet. Um, no, not yet. The whole yet. family, the whole family thing has happened in the last couple years yeah, for me. You're, you're, you're with child. Are, are the, um, are the other band members like starting families and doing that whole thing as well? Pretty much everybody's pretty much in the thick of it yeah you think that will that will affect kind of the status of the band or what kind of moves forward if things do get going again no i don't think so you know i think like everybody uh i think that everybody it's not like anybody's turning around and becoming an insurance broker or anything like that you know like everybody in the band is still totally committed to music and hasn't really gone off with that. So I think that's just more of an evolution thing. I almost think it's positive that everyone's almost evolving together. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that way, like a unified set of goals and things can come into place again. You know, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this break. Not everything I'm willing to talk about, I understand. Uh, you know, and something like this, but I do, I did know it was coming. And I am completely pleased about it. Uh, and I do think it was really smart for the band. Um, and I think the alternative would have been far worse. All that being said, I thought coming home <laughs> and not being in a touring band was going to be a lot fucking easier than it was. Um, in terms like, of just spending your time or like the making, yeah. making a living aspect of things? Both. both i mean you know you know i was smart about it and i've like handled myself where i didn't have to be stressed out too much um it was more a feeling of self um a feeling of being lost a little bit because you know even prior to being a full-time musician like 
I've always just been a worker, you know, like I, I've been on my own since I was 17. So like when I was home, I was working a lot, you know, I was just making money, working, partying, like doing my thing, staying mad busy. And this idea of like coming home and just like, whoa, like clean slate, like I like I need to like restart some careers. I need to find some things. I need to do some things. I realized like as much as I thought I wanted free time and stuff like that, how bad I am with free time and the fact that I need tasks and goals and things like that to stay happy and motivated. Yeah, well, free, um, fr free time can be almost be a burden in a way because it's like if you're not using it well, you feel like you squ you're squandering opportunities and then you beat yourself up because you're like mm -hmm. not doing the things that you feel like you should be doing. And and I yeah. think the thing about the road that, you know, I've um, because I, I haven't toured regularly in, in quite some time, I've kind of toured here and there uh, pretty much since like 2012. But um, is that the road once you you you've decided you like touring it's the it's the best kind of problem avoidance uh apparatus that exists and, and i think people who don't tour won't really understand it because here's the thing about touring you know exactly what you're doing every day and mm -hmm. other people tell you it's like hey this is what time you load in this is when sound check is this is when you play and you have and it's like once you've been doing it it's like oh here's where catering is here's what it, it's very predictable and mm -hmm. it's, and you every day like i said there are very few jobs you go to where motherfuckers applaud you <laughs> and scream your name. You know what I'm saying? You don't like you don't see the old post office motherfucker. He puts a a letter in the fucking thing, and someone's like, Ah, yes, yes. They, you know you what, know what they should though, right? They, they should. should. That's what I'm saying. And that's a and that thing is very addictive and very it's very soothing and allows you to kind of walk in this cocoon of you know you walk around. Like you know, you missed a big dick. Not for nothing. You feel yeah. it's, it's a it's a you know, Doc, this is a part of it though that like I desperately don't wanna think, but I do think is like I wonder how much of this, you know, is that is like is like Did I get used to my fucking ego being stroked all the time? Yes, you like, did, motherfucker. What, like, why are you like, even questioning I, that? <laughs> because, I, because, like, I don't see it like that, for real. Like, I don't... No one's, I, no like, one's above I go it. Out, like, I go out and talk to kids, like, after a show, and I feel an obligation to go talk to these kids because they paid money to see me work. And, like, I go out there and I, like try to be as human as possible and like have just conversations and whatever. And then I smoke a bowl and go to sleep and it feels like this thing that's not so extraordinary to me, but I, I, you know, I maybe just subconsciously you get used to this, like this, this adoration. I, you know, it's not something I ever see seeked. You know, it actually troubles me, the idea that this is something I could get used to and actually want, you know? Well, it's it's just that you have to, I think it's really important, because you said, oh, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. You're one of people in a very, very small group of people 
that gets to do that and actually people give a shit. And, you know, listen, th- like everyone wants to be a rock star, right? Like it, like the word rock star is like a, like they'll call that for anyone, right? If you're like a big time, you know, they're like, oh, fucking this uh, Dennis Rodman is killing the NBA. He's a rock star. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's true. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin is the rock star of of the Republican Party. Like that. Wait, who said that? Well, I mean, when she came out, she was a big. You yeah. know, she was. You know, she was that person of the moment. But it's just about that 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 there's an idea about that. The you know, there's something about the way people treat musicians and concerts. And listen, I'm sure it's changing a little bit. You know, now it's you're probably better off being a fucking DJ <laughs> than playing in a, in a in a band, but. You know, it's just understanding that, you know, that if you get to do that and you're making a living and and people care. And the fact that, like I said, the your band has made an impact where now you're a part of history. You're a part of rock and roll history. Your band Fucking matters when, when they make documentaries and they write books and they, you're you're a part of you made that big of an impact. And that's fucking special. And it's OK to kind of, you know, it's not about puffing your chest out and talking about how great you are and talking to the third person like I do, you know, that's, <laughs> that's my thing, you know, but I'm no, it's, 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 you know, I, I, I guess it's just understanding like it, it's, it's not necessarily a definitive exceptionalism, but there is, you know, in terms of like, yes, I am great and I deserve to be this cause I am this and that, whatever. It's not about that, but it is about understanding I get to do something really special. It's unique. And, it's still really unique. Yeah, yeah, but but I I think the the way you can kind of avoid that is um, you literally have to do the the things that that suppress the ego. See, me, I was a fuck up and cheated on my girlfriend and fell into a fucking depression for like two years and like was a mess. So my ego was defeated on by the inertia of life. <laughs> And I had to deal with myself and kind of tear down everything that I was and kind of build myself back up and do a yeah. lot of, you know, but if you don't have some crazy event that kind of fucks you up, then, you know, you got to meditate or you got to fucking do whatever it is that, but just, but I think recognize it, that there is a character you become like me. I think if you spend more than a month on the road, you start to go a little crazy at, I mean, in, in a, in a row. You know, everything yeah. past four weeks, you start, you know, all of a sudden that, that bottle of Jack starts looking real nice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I do know what you're saying. You yeah. know, it's, you know, you start. And that's, you know, that that was part of like what I'm even talking about is like, you know, it went like from wanting nothing else but that to doing nothing else but that for like 10 years to just like unplugging and not only that like unplugging right into like literally like owning a house having a wife and having a baby um like all at the same time and in that time my mother died and my baby came like over three months early and spent like 95 days in the hospital and this all like she got happened real. in conjunction with the gaslight hiatus um, when I'm home basically for the first time in 10 years without a job. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Uh, so it's been tricky, man. It's definitely been like an interesting emotional and 
physical journey I've been on the last year or so for sure. But I've, you know, I've accomplished a lot and done a lot and I feel good about it. Um, it's just, it's almost like one of those periods in your life where you know a lot about you is changing, but I'm not exactly sure what it is yet. Yeah. But well, I feel it. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're in it, you know, you're kind of, sometimes, you know, you don't, you don't have a grasp on things in the moment. You, you, it's only a couple of years later that you, it all kind of, you know, you can kind of figure out what, what the trajectory was, or like I said, kind of yeah. putting that, that narrative of what was, what was going on. But and um, I haven't even, I haven't talked about what we talked about in this podcast for so long. <laughs> and I haven't thought about it in a while that I feel like I probably definitely missed a lot of details for you. But <laughs> well, that's, that's one thing about, about doing things like this, you know, when you're trying to, especially on my show where I, I try and kind of encapsulate a career. Listen, I was trying to capture every fucking moment. This show would be like eight hours. Like it would take <laughs> seriously. Like there's, you know, every moment, you know, you know, every year of someone's life that they're, especially if you're doing a lot of different things, there's a lot of transitions. It's like so many things happen, man. And you're not gonna be able to capture it all. So I'm, I'm all about just getting kind of the high points and, you know, in, encapsulating all that, all that. But, um, before, uh, before you go, I want to talk a little basketball. Uh, yeah. Uh, Benny, myself, and our and my buddy Luke that I mentioned, you know, we have a little group text text message going on where we we talk hoops and and we're talking about maybe getting a basketball an NBA podcast got it, dude. going. We got it. So let's talk a little NBA. You are mm-hmm. a Brooklyn Nets fan. My condolences. Rough. How uh, how does one? survive as a Brooklyn Nets fan? Well, one thing I find comical is sort of like the new Brooklyn Nets fans getting in such a tiff about it when me as an old New Jersey Nets fan, I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, this is what this is what we do with the exception of like a three year period in the early 2000s. This is pretty much the Nets. Like, no, no we've had. Yeah. Look, listen, here's where the highlights you got: uh, Derek Coleman and uh, Kenny. Kenny, Anderson, Kenny good. Anderson. Did they? They were decent, right? They do better. They, were they couple, max, playoff appearances? A couple but, seven seeds or something like that. Yeah, I don't even remember. I mean, it, those guys were even getting young for me. I mean, the, I got. You know, we had the. I mean, it was really those teams that came. And and then I would say the post kid teams with Vince Carter were still pretty good. We had a nice stretch there in the early two thousands, like a good five six years, where yeah. even we dominated the Knicks, which I loved. Yeah, you so you had that run, and then you had basically the run right before you know essentially when um, they traded for Joe Johnson, and they well they were good for like what like three years. Yeah, uh, I mean essentially right around fifty was, wins. It was right around, yeah, it was that. And then, you know, when they made the move to Brooklyn, you know, Billy King was told by his GM to make a huge splash. And between the Gerald Wallace trade and the uh, gigantic Garnett Pierce, Jason Terry trade, it pretty much bought us one playoff series victory where we made it to the conference semis. And 
crippled the future for about a decade. So, um, so I'm, I'm a- I do have to say on the record, and I talked to my boy Mike, who's my other big Nets fan about this. We were on board for the trade when it happened. I was on board. I can't say that at the time I wasn't like, you know what? You re-signed Darren Williams. You got this. You got this. It looked on paper like enough pieces to compete in the East. It did. And just didn't pan out that way. Well, I'll go on record that I believe it's the worst trade in NBA history. Um, Well, I don't think I realized all the picks they gave up. And and the fact that now, so we're saying so they that the fact they so what the, the pick this year is the swap right? This yeah, the, and, that, and then next year is an outright, just an outright pick. Like yeah. that is like it is. Kevin Garnett hasn't been on the Nets. Him actually, Paul Pierce was there for one season, right? Mm-hmm. One season, that Garnett is, for two. That is fucking crazy. And here's the thing. I, at the time, because I remember the, because the Celtics played the Knicks in the playoffs the, that previous year, and Garnett was great mm. in that series. Mm. And, you know, Pierce was still pretty much Pierce, even though they lost. They they clearly were, were not who they were. But Kevin Garnett fell – like, I think he literally spent the rest of his remaining talent on that last Knicks series because whoever showed up the next year was not Kevin Garnett. That was like, – You know what? He was pretty good, man, and I, I'll give it to Garnett. Like he, he was Kevin Garnett for the Nets. Like he worked so hard. He was so much fun to watch. He just was old. He was just a shell of like the player he was by that time. But I mean, I think the idea wasn't that you were getting Kevin Garnett and it was prime. It's the idea that you had Darren Williams and Joe Johnson in their prime. And that people like Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce would be the ones that like actually can get those guys to do what they should do. Darren Williams ended up underperforming the length of his contract with the Nets. I think that's an aspect of it that's overlooked. Everyone just blames Billy King and blames the trade. I think the thing you should blame Billy King for the most is locking Darren Williams up to that large mega extension. Because he's been nothing but a cancer to teams. I mean, he literally made Jerry Sloan retire. Um, and then, man, Jerry Sloan was six hundred fifty-three years old. Come on, man, he was. He, he had another one hundred twenty-four years in him. I think. I don't. But, I, I don't know about that. He was. But I, I think. I think Darren Williams and his inability to be like the guy was probably the biggest problem. Well, he. Well, I think what was clear about that season was that he Darren Darren Williams and uh Joe Johnson were not leaders even though yeah. you know and Brooke Lopez even though they were the best players you know so Paul Pierce had to be the leader you know and it was like like I said on paper you know and I, and I think there was because who else you had um then Alan Anderson was on that team and then um what's his name uh, who's on uh the Warriors uh Sean, Sean, Liv- Sean yeah. Livingston and then yep. Kir- Kirilenko. Um, that team should have been really good, and I thought they were really good, but something just didn't click. And then obviously, uh, Brooke Lopez ended up getting hurt. But um, yeah. and there couldn't be a worse guy for Joe Johnson to play with than Darren Williams. Like 
that's something, you know, I watched Joe Johnson play for years. He was one of the only guys who lasted out of this situation. And that guy, I mean, he is a good basketball player, a very good basketball player. He just needs to be a role on a good team. You know, it was the idea that like a guy with his kind of temperament just can't carry the load, you know? And people hated Darren Williams. Like his teammates hated him. They just didn't want to be around him. He was bad. And then he would do those like those like Italian soccer player flops mm-hmm. like four times a game. Like that's no way to win over New Yorkers. Like he was he was just the wrong guy for the wrong city. It just didn't just didn't click, well, I feel man. Like all those, I think Joe Johnson's the same thing. Joe Johnson's like a a dude from down south who doesn't want to talk. Like he this dude who go who signs Utah as a free agent? Like almost no one. Like that dude was like, yeah, yeah. I want to go to the place where there's the least amount of attention and I could just be quiet. No nope, pressure. Yeah, he left Miami. He didn't want to go to Cleveland. He didn't, it's true. Know, he didn't want any of that. And that's why he but hated to his Brooklyn. credit, I mean, I'd hate I'd hate to to disparage him saying he doesn't like pressure because Joe Johnson might be the best like late game shooter in Nets history Clutch after fuck. I mean huge. He got he was literally called Joe Jesus here. I mean, like Nets fans <laughs> loved him too. So you know, I, I don't got a lot bad to say about Joe Johnson. That guy was a pro the whole time he was here. Um I fucking hate Darren Williams. That's that's another Jesus. story. So I guess you're not you're not rooting for the uh, the Cavaliers to win the title then. You know what? It I it's actually the other way around. I love LeBron James. I love Kyrie Irving. So I I always root for the Cavs. I think it was a bad signing. I haven't heard anyone. Everyone's like, great. They just randomly picked up Darren Williams. I couldn't think of a worse person to bring into your locker room. I maybe mean, I could think of a worse one. I couldn't think of many worse ones than Darren Williams to bring into a late season locker room. Like that guy is just a chemistry eater, man. Like I, I do not think that was a good move. Um, I think he's going to provide what they think he's going to provide. He's a good postseason player and he can create. So he will help on offense, but I don't think he's going to help that team that much. Well, you have to compare that to who they were had. They had Liggins and, some motherfuckers yeah. I never even heard of. So, I mean, Kate a beast in college. Listen, LeBron James was talking about those dudes like they didn't even exist. He was like, we need a, oh. we need a ball handler. We need someone. Yeah. And he, <laughs> we there's, need, two kids, we, there's two kids on the bench like, uh, yeah, you, you, you know, all right, LeBron, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't exist. All right. So, yeah. so let's, 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 let's keep I it real. That. I love that about LeBron. I love it. No, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a big move because it, in some senses, you know, when you're thinking about uh, the Cavs and that fifth guy and the other guard that's not Kyrie that's going to be on the floor, you have to say, who's more dependable in the late-game situation? Is going to be Darren Williams or J.R. Smith? Probably Dar- probably Darren Williams. You really think so at this point? Yeah, yeah. J.R. Smith was a beast in the playoffs last I love- year. I love JR. I think he's underrated. But what I'm saying is that, but he's also prone, and this is, you know, me being a Knicks fan, to making a bone, doing one bonehead thing down the stretch that that can lose you a game. He can win you a game and he can lose you a game. But what I'm saying is, Darren Williams is a five tool player. He can do everything he can shoot, he can handle, he can distribute. He's probably not the defender he was. And he's probably, I don't know if he's even as good as JR is now. 
He's an average defender. Yeah. yeah. I mean, JR, I think, actually has been a really good defender. But, he's been good. Yeah. But the problem with JR, he's been hurt all year. He's, you know, coming off injury. Who, you know, we don't, you don't really know what you have. So to me, it's, and even same thing with, with Bogut. Um, it, they didn't need Bogut, but it provided like a safety valve. Like, oh, here's this mm-hmm. tool. But now, obviously, they don't have him. He's out. But, um, but no, I think. What did he a, play? 58, 58 seconds, Bogut played? Dude, that dude has the worst luck of That's anyone. That's rough. That's rough. He must I have. mean, I, I don't. Um... I think maybe the same thing that saved J.R. Smith last year could be something that helps Darren Williams now, which is like when you wind up playing with LeBron and you get into this system, you have a very defined role. You know what I mean? Like, And J.R. Smith knows exactly what his role is now. And Darren Williams with a like 15-minute-a-night role actually could be a lot more useful than when when that much pressure is on him dude it's a, it's an arms race and the truth is if you're just talking strictly talent there are yeah. really only there's just you know you're probably not going to get a better guard off the bench outside of maybe like eric gordon or lou williams you know people of that magnitude coming off your bench and the truth is losing delhi losing mozgov they, you know, they needed another wing, um, and a lot of their guys are older. You know, guys are like Richard Jefferson, uh, Channing Fry playing probably a little more minutes in the regular season than you want them yeah, to. LeBron's should, yeah. playing. You know, that's why I, th- I love the Derek Williams signing. I think that's another guy that you know can run with LeBron and can kind of be an energy guy. But and- well, we talked about this on the text. Like you were literally you were talking about Derek Williams as like like serious. Like this guy's like a legit like NBA wing. And he's like not yet, you know. Well, he's not proven himself consistently over well, time. He's he's an. I would say he's. It. I think certain players are difficult to um, assess how good they are and what they bring. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, Moe Spates is a guy that helped a team win a title, but in a vacuum, do you look at Moe Spates? I'm like, yeah, that guy is great. That guy is what? No, you just you know, it's all about being the right person for the right position the problem with Derek Williams is expectations he's a number two pick so you expect he should do xyz um but the, you know but and I just don't think that's right I think I think certain players can be you I saw him play with the Knicks and I saw him do really good things and be, he's a guy who can go he can get your buckets you know he's kind of a probably a minus defender but there's guys like that that if you put them with a LeBron you put them with a certain team. Look at JaVale McGee. JaVale McGee's been starting for the Golden State Warriors and doing great. A guy that's known perennially as a knucklehead. But you put him with on a great team and he can do a lot of great things. You know? Don't quote Shaq. What what did I quote Shaq? What's the Shaq? I believe Knucklehead. Wasn't that like Shaq's whole thing? Well, I no, I mean that's just that's kind of clear, you know. Um it but, in a JaVale McGee's mama got mad at Shaq, right? She did, you know, but that's because Shaq's like, I'll slap you, you know, and, you know. He, well, he, far. Well, well, far. That's some, here's the thing. That's some, that's some brother shit, you know, just talking shit. <laughs> I'm going to slap you. I'm going to fuck you. Yo, nigga, you want you, you see these hands? You know, uh, that's just some ignorant shit that, you know, that people are still keeping. Uh, and you know, what's, you know what's funny is Shaq is like a co-owner of a team. Yeah. Like that dude, you know what I'm saying? Act act like you've been there. You know, calm down. But I think Shaq just makes like I remember when Shaq and, and uh Scotty Pippen were dissing each other 
Oh yeah, it was great. And as Shaq did, <laughs> he did this thing where he had a picture of the old sidekick phone, and it, to make fun of Scotty Pippen, say he's yeah. just, he is just a sidekick. It's funny though. Yo, don't good, you don't fuck with Shaq. No, no, do good. not He's do good. not get in a, in, a, in a diss battle because uh, Shaq is a um, his Shaq foo as far as diss, dissing is 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 high level. Um, so yeah, so I I do think that that KG Pierce trade is the worst of all time, and I think it actually between that trade and the Mellow trade, even though I don't think that was nearly as bad, um, have changed the way trades are done because now we kind of see the long game of the win like the win now for the most part depending on what you give up just doesn't work you know um and well, it's got to be that balance right and then we've also seen how the straight like tank mode and trying to just totally rebuild through the draft you need that to work to an extent but you can't completely just build like that. You need other elements as well. You know, like how long is it going to take with Philly? Like, you know, you can't take this long in a competitive sports league. It's just not. Why not? I don't know. I mean, this is something I think sports fans lose focus on all the time is the fact that like we're literally watching a, a, a gigantic corporate entertainment industry. And, like, whatever hinders the entertainment aspects of these industries will be changed. And, like, what Philadelphia is doing and the fact that an entire fan base was basically just told to fuck off for, like, nearly a decade. Like, What are you talking about? They were, they were in the Eastern Conference Finals, like, five years ago. Okay. Five years ago, they've been yeah. told to fuck off no they and, didn't, no they didn't they, listen they didn't get told to fuck off here's here all right i'm gonna break something down that that sports fans here's the thing most sports fans are fucking idiots all right i'm gonna put that out there who don't know understand things there's 30 teams okay the likelihood your team is going to win is minuscule because it's a league that's been dominated by dynasties all right four teams won the title in the 80s. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? And Boston and LA won eight of them. Okay? In the 90s, Chicago won six of the championship. Like, you're not going to, you know, the, the likelihood you're going to win anyway is small. So stop going out there with expectations. All right, well, if we don't win, you know, it's like, listen, they're giving themselves the best chance to do that because the, the point is, what's the point of being like Atlanta? And being a five seed every year for for fifteen years, but never breaking through is that better than just then saying, "Hey, we're just gonna suck until we get the one guy, you know, or the or the couple guys, and we're gonna give ourselves the best opportunity to do that." Well, what I'm saying is that I do agree that people like the Sixers are doing the smartest thing they can do under the current system that is in place. Here's something I got to ask you, and it's because of basically what I find to be the failings of the drafting system is why are we still drafting? Like, is it weird to you that a grown man in his 20s who just like 
did X amount of things for their entire life to get to a certain point is given zero freedom about where they decide to work and how they get to dictate their salary. Isn't that an odd thing? Well, it's not. Well, that's not totally true because they can go play in China. They can go play in Australia, but that that league has the has the most money and the best opportunities. So they're at the they're they're at the the mercy of the league. But I, but I hear what you're saying. I, I even mean inside the league. Like like wouldn't a free market be able to dictate this a little better? Well, it is a free market, just not within the NBA. So it's like, like I said, you can go play in another league. No, I'm talking about inside of the yes, NBA. Oh, no, That's because here, you know, the reason why that is, and it's the same with most sports, is um, they believe in the, – these are billionaires who believe in socialism for them and capitalism for you, right? So when they're, when they're in the game, they want an even playing field, right? You know what I'm saying? But in the real world, they want no, 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 no. If you you fuck up, no, no, you we we ain't give you nothing. Go fuck yourself. They believe it. it's so. It, it is basically every everything's equal. Everyone has equal opportunities. That's that's how they want. You know, I I don't think there should be a salary cap. You know, I'm totally down to get rid of the draft. You know, but it definitely will create. You know, certain teams will never have a chance because no one who would go to Minnesota. Think of a brother, a black man. Who's who's nineteen years old, twenty years old? Going like, yo, yo, bro, I'm going to Minnesota. It's hot. You know what I'm saying? Go over, to, go over to First Ave where Prince used to. They don't even know who Prince is anymore. These young, these young childrens. All right. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, but like, you know, I thought that era was was over because of, you know. The cable stuff, the satellite stuff. That's, where, not, what that's not what I'm talking. You know, about. your your Oklahoma cities, your your things like that can can actually compete with the major markets. Yeah, where but you they still have to live. In, but you still have to live in Minnesota. I'm just yeah. talking about the fact that some places are dope and some places are not. You don't think Carl Anthony Towns is a fan of cheese curds? I mean, he probably is now, but it's not. Like <laughs> I, no, I'm sure a lot of these people go. No, there. I know. What I know what you're saying. Listen, I think. I think I think you're right. I but if you're a young guy and you get drafted high and you you're just probably so fucking happy just to be in the NBA and you know you just understand, oh, I don't know where I'm going to end up or you know who's going to have the high draft picks and you have an idea, oh, I'll probably go here and whatever, you just deal with it and you go someplace and you learn to like it, you know. Right. But when given the choice, you know, people would, you know, people want to be in LA and they want to be in Miami and they want to be in you know. But what if like the free market aspect of the business dictated it where, OK, like you're a point guard. L.A. stacked their team. New York stacked their team. Oh, cool. Kevin Garnett owns a team in the middle of the country now and there is no salary cap anymore. And he'll give me two hundred million dollars to come be King Dick in Minneapolis. Like that's where if you allowed the free market. I think some of these things could potentially fix themselves. Well, I mean, it, I mean that's kind of how baseball is, right? With their, they don't have a salary cap. I mean, how like I, and I haven't followed baseball uh, really. They don't have a hard cap, but at the same time, you know, the Yankees have been paying thirty or forty million dollars back to the league every single year for being over the soft cap. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you can it, afford it. it's a it's a redistribution system in baseball where if you go over the cap, you pay a penalty and the penalty is redispersed among the remaining teams. Well, the, my my main problem with the hard cap is people like LeBron James, people like Kobe Bryant, 
people like Tim Duncan, uh, they get hurt. They will never, LeBron James will probably, maybe in his final year, but he'll never get market value. LeBron James is worth <laughs> 50 to $100 million a year. Hundred million, easy. Right, so he'll never get that. And then you have situations where Kobe went and maxed out as as much money he could get, screwed his team over, but he was saying, "Well, I'm worth this much," even though he's probably worth more. Whereas, whereas you had people like Tim Duncan and Dirk Nowitzki take a pay cut because they cared about winning. But why should they have to take a pay cut if they're you know, um, and but the system is set up where these guys have to be the ones to sacrifice, right? Mark Cuban doesn't have a have to sacrifice. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, whoever owns the Spurs doesn't have to sacrifice. But all these all these guys are taking less because they want to win. But that's the the system that they have set up. Like, listen, the fact that baseball players, like pitchers, you know, are making more than NBA players working every fifth day. You know what I'm saying? Motherfucking, I'm sorry, yo. If you could look like like uh, you know <laughs> Babe Ruth and still play the sport, the, you know <laughs> it ain't it ain't that physically demanding. Let's you know com- comparatively. That's all I'm saying. I, I I think the 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 amount of work and what these guys do, they should definitely get what uh. What about what Oliver Miller? What about Oliver Miller? Well, or or Brian or Brian Big Country Reeves. Yeah, well that didn't go so well, down, did it? I'll, you know, they, these these are the cautionary tales of the league. Big Big Baby is not in the NBA right now. Hate to break it to you. He did all right though. He had a deal. No, yeah, he listen. He 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 maximized. He won uh, a ring, right? Did he win one yeah, with Boston? Two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand eight. All right. You got any uh, predictions for the end of the year? Any concerns? What, what what what's going on? Is is it a foregone conclusion once Kevin Durant comes back back the? Uh, you know, I actually think things got a lot more interesting in the last few weeks. I think the Warriors are a little exposed. Um, I'm not too concerned about them, especially if Durant comes back. But this idea, it's always bothered me since the end of last season, this idea that you can gut a bench and a team starting three and just like move on business as usual isn't the case. And it works when you add Kevin Durant, but when you take Kevin Durant out, that team is thin. Um, well, I think it also underscores how good Harrison Barnes was for them. And exactly. his skill set, being able to guard multiple positions, hit the three, um, that there's actually not that many of those guys in the league either. And he, even though mm-hmm. Kevin Durant is a much better version of that, that sure. when you lose that, and I think honestly, any of their top four, if any one of those guys is out, I think they're going to suffer dramatically. And, and because so who can actually beat them in the West? I think the Rockets can because I think the Rockets can outscore them. Um, they're going to shoot more threes. You know, they'll probably shoot more threes than Golden State, and it's just a numbers game. You know, um, is Utah think, real? Um. I haven't watched them enough to say so, um, but they have to beat the, you know, if they're in the four or five, they have to beat the Clippers first. Um, but I think Houston can go, can gun, go gun for gun. And I think if if it ends up being San Antonio, Golden State, I think Golden State is going to kick their ass. I think. Yeah. I, I, I just think athletically, um, you know, it's going to be interesting. Will 
Because the thing is, LaMarcus Aldridge has to destroy them. He has to just because you saw it happen last season. Those first few games, he was averaging what like thirty eight a game, killing them, mm-hmm. and then he then he sucked for the rest of the series. Yeah. And that's yeah. and that's in there what where they've been exposed in the last few years has been athletically that they couldn't stay on the floor, they couldn't keep up with the Clippers athletically, they couldn't keep up with uh, the Thunder athletically, and that's one thing that the uh, the Warriors they just. It, they just move so fast and it's so lightning, you know, that I think in, in some ways San Antonio benefits from the fact that outside of the top seven or eight teams, the w- w- league is pretty weak and they win every single game they're supposed to. And so their their record is impeccable. Um, but once you actually get out into a series, do the same thing still work, you know? Um, so it's going to be... I think Houston has a better chance because of the way they play that it's whatever. It's going to be 130 to 140 every game. And they can now, especially now they have Lou Williams, you know, they're going to have Sweet Lou. I love that pickup. Which is. I think, uh, I still think that um, I said it. It was actually my preseason prediction. And I still kind of think it now. I think that if anybody can take out the Warriors in a series, it's the Clippers. I know. People kind of kind of lulled to sleep on him the last month or two because Griffin and Paul were both going back and forth being hurt. But that team going into the playoffs healthy is extremely dangerous. They've lost to, the, they've like lost the, to, the, to the Warriors 11 times in a row by like 15 points a game. I know. I know. I think they have something, though. I think in a playoff series, it's going to get weird. Um well, and if they, well, if they if they can win the first round, then they'll they'll play the, the they'll play them in the second round. So we'll we'll, we'll see. But I I also believe that Cleveland if Cleveland is healthy, they probably have the best chance because I love I love all the new additions. But they have to be healthy, and you know, actually, one thing look interesting to look at: San Antonio might actually be able to get the one seed. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. that's mm-hmm. something to to look to at the, to the end of the year, and that could you know be a situation where they're in the, the conference finals and they have home court advantage. That's something that you know it's been two two or three years where they've always had the home court advantage. So mm-hmm. that'd be something interesting to look at. Anyway, buddy, uh, really want to thank you for coming on. It's it was a long one, but I like it like this. Hey, Doc. Yeah. Thanks for having me on your podcast. That was fun. Of course, man. Anytime. Well, now they've done me home.
about in the city No one to find you or recognize As your black heels kick out the beat Of my heart in perfect time And that was Stay Vicious by the Gaslight Anthem from the last album they put out called Get Hurt, uh, which came out in 2014. I want to thank Mr. Benny Harwitz for coming on the show. I love that dude. Um, he's truly one of one of the good dudes out there. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty amazing when you have friendships uh, for this long, you know, spanning multiple decades. And, you know, and you realize, you know, things change, but... Some things don't don't change that much, and it's uh, really great to uh, still have that have a nice relationship with him. So thanks again to him. Thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it so much. Thanks to Jabberjaw Media for bringing me into the uh, bringing the X Men into their network. Um, I think things this year are looking up. We're really looking forward to it. Anyway, you guys be good. Mamba out. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.